In John 19, beginning of verse 17, we read this. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Several years ago at Easter time, there was an interesting graph in USA Today that showed what people said they would be willing to pay to be assured for a place in heaven. In other words, what would you pay to be assured that you could go to heaven? And they asked a lot of different questions and took a lot of different information, and then they made a graph of it. And the graph, the result was that most people, the largest majority of people, would be willing to pay $640,000 to go to heaven. The good news is that for you and me, the cost is much less <laughs> because God paid it. That's what Easter's about. That's what the cross is about. Several years ago, uh, I already did that. Romans 5 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for our sins. He died to pay our price. More than $640,000 he paid that we might have salvation. Now, I mentioned last week, and I think I mentioned this morning, that we talked about the cross last week, and that we were going to look at it again this week. We, we talked about the importance of the cross, and we read about where Paul said that he wouldn't boast in anything else but that he would glory, he would boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and that is really an incredible statement. Imagine if a a new religion started up and uh, they adopted the electric chair as the symbol of their religion. When they wanted to identify themselves as a member of this new religion, they would have an electric chair there for everybody to look at because essentially it's what the cross was. The cross was a a way, a method, a form of crucifixion, of, of execution. It's the way Jesus was executed. Jesus was put to capital punishment. Back in the way, way, way back when uh, I was still in college and uh, Jennifer and I went to a church meeting in Albuquerque, where an evangelist was preaching. And uh, we heard a sermon on the crucifixion. Now, the bad news for you and the good news for us is that that sermon lasted an hour and a half. The good news for you is I'm not going to take that long, okay? (laughs) Uh, Much, much, much less. But we went to that, and we listened to that a long time before God had called me to preach. And even longer before I started preaching every week. Uh, It was probably 
five years or more before I preached my first sermon. But uh, when I started thinking about that sermon, I wanted to share it. And Jennifer said to me, before you preach that message, you need to check it out because there's a lot of medical stuff in it. And, and you guys know that I am a doctor, but I'm a doctor preacher, not a doctor doctor, okay? So I don't have the medical uh, knowledge. So I went to the library, the medical library at the University of New Mexico where I was going to school, and I researched crucifixion. And, and I looked it up. Give me that picture, uh, Miss Sydney. Don, give us some no light for just a second. I don't know if you can see that or not, but this was the cover of the Journal of the American Medical Association on March the 21st, 1986. Uh, it's a painting that was done in the 1860s by a French artist, Manet, M-A-N-E-T, not Monet, Manet. And the title of it is the... Um, was it? Anyway, it's where they made fun of Jesus, where they talked about Jesus and they cast uh, excursions on him. And, and I suspect that many of you have seen at this point the Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Uh, you know, if you've seen that, uh, one of the bit, biggest critics complaint of that movie was that it was too bloody. But this magazine article uh, explains what happens in a Roman crucifixion. It, just, it From archaeology and from a medical standpoint, it looked into the medical implications of what Jesus experienced when he paid for your place in heaven. The movie was true to the history. It may have been bloody, but the truth is, crucifixion was a bloody situation. It was a bloody uh, execution. The cross was a cruel form of execution. As a matter of fact, the Romans didn't use that as their regular method of, of execution. It was only used in the case of sedition or rebellion. And so Jesus was... Executed. That's why Pilate said he was king of the Jews, which made him eligible to be executed by crucifixion. So as you begin to look at the crucifixion, you realize that the crucifixion, a Roman crucifixion, began with a beating. The first thing they did was they took Jesus out, they tied him to a post, and they whipped him. 39 lashes with a leather thong tied with sheep bones, little bits of sheep bones and metal balls and they put it across his back. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, John said in chapter 19 verse 1. Matthew and Luke also tell us that Pilate scourged Jesus or had him scourged and the word for scourging is flogging. They, they flogged him 
they beat him. And it was a legal, legal preliminary to every Roman execution. They wanted the, the person executed to be very, very weak when they put him on the cross so that he wouldn't last there very long, that he would die within two or three days. They expected him to die when they put him on the cross. And in, in the JAMA magazine, in the JAMA article, they had a diagram, and they showed how, what a flogging looked like. And they had him tied to the post with his hands up above him, and uh, they, they beat him and crossed the back and left stripes for the scourging. He, was, you know, he, he, he didn't have his clothes on. His hands were tied, and the whole backside was whipped by one or two soldiers. Uh, if it was one soldier, he alternated sides, so they got the whole back. And the severity of the, the beating was intended to weaken the victim to a, to a state just short of collapse. As a matter of fact, a lot of people did die. The beat, they never made it to the cross. They died as a result of the scourging. And as it continued, cutting the skin and the underlying tissues, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Enough blood was lost to, for a person to go into shock. And then after the scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victim. And that was the picture on the cover of the magazine. That's what the name of it was, the taunting of Christ. See, I knew that word would come to me eventually. John 19.2 says, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. And then after that, they took Jesus as I read a minute ago. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And you've all heard that Jesus was to carry his cross to the place of execution, of crucifixion. But you know, a cross, according to um, Jama, a cross weighed in the neighborhood of 300 pounds. And after having been beaten like that, not very many people could carry a cross of 300. Not very many people could carry it before being beaten, 300 pounds. And so the truth is, is that he didn't carry the whole cross. He only carried the crossbar. It's called, it's a beam called the patabulum, and it only weighed about a hundred pounds. It was stretched across his neck, and his arms were tied to it, and he carried that as he balanced it on both shoulders. And then the procession from the place of the flogging to the place of the crucifixion was led by a Roman military guard, and the guard was headed by a centurion. That's, we, we come across that saturian again in the, in the scripture. And one of the soldiers carried a sign on which the condemned man's name and his crime were displayed. And that's what Pilate had put on that sign. This is Jesus, or the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. It says in John 19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. 
it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And therefore many of the Jews who read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but write that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered them, I have written what I have written. So Jesus carried this sign, or this cross, and behind a procession where it said, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. And he carried it down what uh, we know today as the Via Dolorosa. And uh, it's a place in, in Jerusalem. You can walk those same, same steps from the uh, place of the old Roman fortress where Jesus was flogged down to the place of the crucifixion. In Luke 22, 23, Luke says, Simon of Cyrene was taken from the crowd to carry the cross because Jesus wasn't able physically to carry that hundred pounds all the way down the Via Dolorosa. Mark's gospel tells us that all of this happened about nine o'clock in the morning when they put Jesus on the cross to crucify him. You know that uh, he was given a, a taste of, of uh, vinegar and wine or wine mixed with myrrh. That was, according to Jama, that was a part of the Roman crucifixion. It was a law that stated they had to give that to him because it was a mild analgesic. And then... He was thrown onto the ground on his back with his outstretched arms along the beam. The, the, the upright pole is already there, and he's just laying across that uh, patabellum. The Romans preferred to nail the hands to the cross. In the crucifixion accounts of the gospel, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but the crucifixion accounts of the gospel don't say that Jesus was actually nailed to the cross. Only later in John, when Thomas says that before he will believe that that's Jesus, he wants to see the, the holes in the hands before he would believe that it was Jesus, do we understand that that's how Jesus was attached to the cross. The archaeological finds have, have shown the nails that they used. They found nails in crosses. They found nails in uh, feet. They found one foot of a, of a crucifixion victim from the first century. And they showed the nails. And guys, they, they weren't nice little 10-penny, 18-penny, or even 20-penny galvanized steel nails that they used. They looked an awful lot to me like a railroad spike. About eight inches long, squared off, pointed at the end, and, uh, you know, I can't imagine uh, being nailed with something like that. And then after he was nailed to the patabulum, the patabulum and the victim were lifted and then dropped into place on the cross on the upright and then his feet were attached to the cross nailed to the cross in Jesus' case 
with the same kind of nails that the feet were attached to the upright. The, the sign then that had been carried to the crucifixion site was attached to the cross. And then once again, the soldiers and the crowd taunted and jeered the condemned man as the soldiers divided up his clothes and gambled as to who would get to take his clothes. The nailing of the feet, or at least the tying of the feet, or at some places when the feet weren't nailed, they put a, uh, a, a block of wood at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the uh, crucified, so that he could push up and get his weight off of his hands. And, and what happened was, is when a crucified victim was hanging from his arms and all of his weight was on his arms, you can breathe in, but you can't breathe out. And you would suffocate. And so a person hanging on a cross had to have his feet attached to the bottom so that he could push up and ex exhale. And then because he was beaten like he was, he would then collapse back down. Now, Jamma didn't say anything about this. The scripture doesn't say about anything about that. But you guys have heard me preach long enough. You know I've got an imagination, right? And in my imagination, I see that shaking, quivering, bleeding flesh on his back rubbing up and down against that. I don't think myrrh with uh, a little bit of wine is going to solve that. I'm not even sure ibuprofen would help that very much. He was hurting. And the length of survival of a victim generally ranged from three to four hours to three or four days and was inversely related to the severity of the beating, of the scourging. <clears throat> and just to make matters worse, Jama talks about the insects that would light upon the burrow or into the open wounds and the eyes and the ears and the nose of a dying and helpless victim. And then eventually uh, they either suffocated because they didn't have the strength anymore to, to stand up or if the Romans were bored with the crucifixion and they were ready for it to end, a soldier would go by and break the legs of the victim. And then he could no longer rise and he would suffocate right away. It was called a crucifracture. And the victim died within minutes. But we read in John 19 verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, was the Sabbath of the Passover, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, and they broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So Jesus died before they broke his legs. 
which is very scriptural because in Psalm 34, when it talks about the death of the Messiah to come, it says, not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus didn't die with broken bones. In Exodus 12, verse 46, the, the instructions given for the Passover lamb, and you realize that Jesus was the lamb that was sacrificed at Passover. The instructions given in Exodus for the Passover lamb is that you're not to break a single bone of the Passover lamb. And so Jesus died before his bones were broken. So how did he die? That's what JAMA was moving towards in, in their article. And that's what this uh, evangelist said that day that struck my heart so, so deeply. You know, it, it's tough enough listening to the, to the pain and the physical pain and the endurance that Jesus went through. But listen to how he died. In John verse 19, verse 34, chapter 19, verse 34, it says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and this testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Now John is this witness. John saw this happen. He's the one who was there at the cross because he's the one to whom Jesus said, Behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. And so John was there. And so he testified, and his testimony is true. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And so Jama explained that when they pierced Jesus' side, and the result was blood and water, that it gives us an autopsy of how Jesus died. And as Matthew records in verse 20, chapter 27, verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Those two events, the blood and the water from the side and the yielding with a loud voice, suggest, according to Jama, not according to the doctor preacher, but according to the doctor doctor, suggest the possibility of a catastrophic terminal event. Two possibilities. One, cardiorespiratory failure. The catastrophic event being caused by a heart attack. Or, Jama says, the other possibility is that his heart just ruptured without the need of a heart attack. His, his heart just broke. So here's what happened to Jesus. He carried all the sins of the world to his body on the cross. The world that he loved, you and your sins and me and my sins, he took all of those to the cross. And the world that he loved hung him there to kill him. He agonized over our condition. 
At one point, he was separated from God for the first time in his existence when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then Jesus cried out and died of a broken heart. His heart was literally broken over our sin. Guys, that's incredible. And I'm sorry to be so graphic, but you need to know how your $640,000 was paid. Scripture tells us that upon the death of Jesus, there were five unnatural phenomena that accompanied his death. One, darkness covered the earth. Two, there was a great earthquake. Three, the rocks broke. Four, the tombs were opened and dead people walked some into the city where they were seen. Can you imagine those things happening? Those folks who were there at the cross, they saw that. They felt the earthquake. They uh, saw the darkness. The sun goes behind a a big dark cloud, and they, they realize that the tombs are opening and dead people are walking. Do you think if you saw that it would have some effect on you? If you've ever been in an earthquake, that has an effect on you, doesn't it? Well, it affected those people too. Remember those people who had come together to see the crucifixion? Remember, they came out cursing Jesus and mocking Jesus and making fun of Jesus. Well, when they observed these things, Luke says, they began to return to the city beating their breasts. The beatings of the breast was a symbol of remorse. They came out mocking and cursing and spitting and shouting, crucify him, crucify him. If you be the son of God, save yourself. And now they return. They've been silenced. There was at least one there who recognized what had happened. I mean, John was there, Mary was there. Uh, They knew what had happened. But there was one Roman there who also recognized what had happened. The centurion, the one who had been in charge of the crucifixion. Scripture says this, he said, surely this man is the son of God. He recognized what had happened. You know, there's no mention of his accepting Jesus as Christ or repenting of his sin or becoming a Christian or falling on his knees and repenting and accepting the forgiveness for what he had done. What does that mean to us? Do you know today in in our world, almost in, in our country, almost half of the adults in the United States neither belong to a church nor have visited one within the last six months except maybe for weddings or funerals. You know, that's a terrible, terrible figure. The interesting thing is is that according to George Barna's research 63% of those who 
neither belong to a church or have been to one within the last six months, 63% of them believe that the Bible is God's word. I find that incredible. They believe the Bible is God's word, but they don't respond to it in any way. 77% say they pray to God, and 72% agree with the centurion that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not talking about 72% of Americans. He's talking about 72 of the 50% that don't go to church or that don't belong to a church. They, they know Jesus is the Son of God. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe the Bible is the Word of God. They know, they believe, if they believe Jesus and they believe the Bible, that he was died and he was buried, but they've never made a difference in their lives as a result of it. They do nothing in return. My, my prayer, I trust that that doesn't include any of us, that we have all truly accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But then perhaps the most important of the unnatural events, remember I said there were five and I only gave you four. I know some of you are keeping track. The fifth one is that the veil in the temple was torn into two. And this veil is the veil, the curtain, that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy of holies in the temple was the dwelling place of God. It's the place in the temple where God dwelt, where the high priest went once a year on the Day of Atonement and went in and made uh, confession, made uh, atonement for the sins of all the nations. And it's set between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. It was a large curtain. It was about six inches thick. And it was this curtain that rich people want to pay $640,000 to get around. You know, they don't want to be behind the curtain. They want to be in the presence of God. And so they're willing to pay $640,000. But when Jesus died... Scripture tells us that God tore into two from the top to the bottom. You know, curtains normally tear from the bottom to the top. But in this case, it tore from the top to the bottom to signify that it was something that God had accomplished. There was no longer a separation between men and God. People and God could go directly to God because Jesus Christ became the curtain that was dissolved. But now, we're to the reason that we're celebrating Easter today. In a book that Lori Beth Jones wrote several years back entitled Jesus, the CEO, she quotes a child who knew what Jesus' first words upon stepping out of the tomb that Easter morning were. The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, theologians have even talked about it. I wonder, wonder what it was. But a little child knew. Do you want to guess? 
You want to guess what that kid thought the, the first words of Jesus were when he stepped out of the tomb? I don't know what they were, but this child knew. She said that the first words of Jesus when he stepped out of the tomb were, ta-da! <laughs> I've actually titled this sermon from Calvary to the grand ta-da. Because that's what Easter is. It's the grand ta-da. And it may seem a little frivolous to us, but to a child's way of thinking, it's the great reveal. It's the great surprise. It's the miracle whose magnitude legitimizes the Christian faith. Life has, has no right to die, and Jesus fixed that once and for all. God in eternity will wipe all their tears from her eyes. But first, he got out his handkerchief and wiped the, tomb, wiped the tears of Mary Magdalene as she stumbled her weeping way to the door of the tomb because she had heard the grand ta-da. By mid-morning, Simon Peter and John had heard the grand ta-da. Then a couple of travelers on the way to Emmaus heard it. And, you know, there, there's no use rehearsing the story of the grand ta-da. We all know it well. And I wouldn't even bring it up, except I like to think about it. I like to think about it a lot. You know, last fall, our old friend Earl passed away. You know, cancer took him pretty quick from the time he was diagnosed until we were at his funeral. And for as long as I've been here, and probably as a lot, most of you, Earl's been an integral part of the church. And that sudden illness and death took us unawares. I can still sit and remember and sit right there where you are. Beth, you took a seat. Right there where you are is where he sat Sunday after Sunday as faithful as could be. But you know, Earl wasn't a rich man in physical things. Now, I could be wrong. He surprised me in a lot of ways. But I could be wrong, but I doubt that if he cashed everything he owned, he would not be able to get the $640,000 to get into heaven. Now, that's just my guess. But one day in September... Earl walked into heaven. Not because he was wealthy, not because he could afford $640,000, but because of the grand to die. The message of Easter. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. This miracle must always be the most dynamic reality in the lives of of believers. An empty grave is there to prove our Savior lives. But more than that, an empty grave is there to prove our payment has been made. We serve a Christ who is alive forevermore. One last thing, and I'll stop. I don't want to go an hour and a half. That man, Simon Cyrene, the man who carried Jesus' cross, is 
far as we know, he was just picked out of the crowd. He was part of the crowd that was watching the procession from the Roman soldiers proceeding in front of, of three criminals, two criminals and one seditionist or rebellion. And as he walked and as he looked, he listened. You know, he's carrying the cross now, and so he hears all the things that others are saying. And somehow or another, from carrying that cross to seeing the crucifixion and seeing the events that took place, there is every evidence in the New Testament that he became a Christian, that he accepted Christ as his Savior. He became a part of the church in Antioch. And his wife and his son were later a part of the church at Rome. Those are in Mark 15 and Romans 16, if you you want to look them up. But this man met Jesus in an interesting moment. Something that no other person in the world had ever done. He carried part of Jesus' load and burden. And he gave his life to him. And spent his life serving him. And that's the way we've responded to Christ. Maybe we need to make that response today. We've accepted Christ as our personal Savior. And we're not among the unchurched or we wouldn't be here. And we have responded positively to the grand tada. The historical truth is that Jesus was crucified in the first century. You know that. You believe that. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God like the centurion. You know what happened to Jesus on the cross. And you know that what happened to him on the cross is because he loves you. And he wants you to open your heart and accept that forgiveness. When they nailed Jesus' hands to the cross, it was his hands that they were nailing, but it was your sin that was being nailed there. What a blessing it is to accept that and receive the free gift of God which is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord.